You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. John Lewis was an American politician and civil rights leader who served the United States House of Representatives from 1987 until his death in 2020. And in his early life as a civil rights activist, John Lewis participated in the 1960 Nashville sit-ins, where he was arrested and jailed. He also participated in the Freedom Rides of 1961, where he was assaulted and left for dead. And in 1965, he led the first Selma to Montgomery march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where state troopers and local police brutally attacked those who marched on a day that became known as Bloody Sunday. He was the chairman of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And he was one of the primary leaders who organized the 1963 March on Washington. John Lewis fulfilled many key roles in the civil rights movement to end legalized racial segregation in the United States. And throughout his life, John Lewis fought to see black Americans flourish. All Americans flourish. But this brought him into conflict with people, systems, and powers that undermined the flourishing of black people. He suffered in doing this work. He was attacked for doing this work. The social and political powers of the day were stacked against him. But shortly before his death, this is how John Lewis encouraged others in the struggle. This is what he said, and I quote, Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Throughout the story of the global and historic church, God's people have fought to see their neighbors from every walk of life flourish. In the grand design of God, the church fulfills a key role in his kingdom movement for the redemption of the world. But around the globe and through time, Christians have been arrested and jailed for preaching the gospel. Christians have been tortured for remaining faithful to Christ. Christians have even been killed for their works of justice and mercy. God's mission has always brought the church into conflict with the people, the systems, and the powers that undermine the redemption and flourishing of our neighbors. God's people have suffered for doing this work. God's people have been attacked for doing this work. The social and political powers have often been stacked against God's people. But through his word, the Lord essentially tells his church, do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, 
ever be afraid to make some noise and get in some good trouble, necessary trouble. Our text for today helps us to replace our romantic versions of mission with a clear picture of what we can expect when we take up this work of mission. And we're going to approach this text through two points where we consider the necessity of conflict and our fidelity in conflict. The necessity of conflict and our fidelity in conflict. So let's look at our first point where we see the necessity of conflict. Now, one way of understanding the story of God is by looking at the theme of the great conflict that pulses through the story beginning in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve decide to turn from God, when they rebel against the Lord, the Lord comes and he places a curse on the creation. And when it comes to the curse that he places on the serpent, the great deceiver, he says that he is going to create enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this enmity, this division, this conflict finds expression all throughout the rest of the story of Scripture. It shows up in episodes like Cain and Abel, like Jacob and Esau, like Israel and Egypt, like David and Goliath, to name a few. But this conflict comes to a climax in the gospel narratives with the arrival of the Son of God. When Jesus Christ begins his earthly ministry, it's no accident that demonic activity spikes. It's no surprise that social and political opposition to Jesus begins to grow into a boiling point because this is the climax of the cosmic conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So what we see is that Jesus' conflict with the religious leaders and social powers of his day is really an expression of this longitudinal theme in scriptures. This is a thread that runs throughout the story. But what we have to understand this morning is that according to scripture, this conflict is a necessary conflict. And you might ask yourself, why is this a necessary conflict? After all, aren't Christians supposed to be a people of peace? Yes. Aren't Christians supposed to follow the Prince of Peace? Yes, we are. But again, we have to remember that there's a difference between the Jesus of popular imagination and the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus of Scripture actually said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. It creates division between those who belong to me and those who do not. There is a fissure here. There is a difference. There is a conflict. But why is the conflict necessary? Because the Lord is in conflict 
with everything that is opposed to the flourishing of his creation. But that's the simple reason why conflict is necessary. God is in conflict with all of the forces that oppose the flourishing of his creation. Light opposes darkness. Life opposes death. Love opposes hatred. Hope opposes despair. Flourishing opposes famine. The Lord is in conflict with every sin, every evil, every idolatry that estranges people from himself. The Lord is in conflict with everyone and everything that steals life and peace and joy from individuals and communities. The conflict is necessary because the Lord is covenantally committed to making all things new. The conflict is necessary because of the Lord's love. Now, let me give you an illustration of what I mean. If an intruder broke into my house armed, you best believe that it is my love for my family that would lead me into conflict with the intruder because I am committed to my people and protecting them because I'm committed to their flourishing. I must be in conflict with the intruder. So this is the way that we are to understand the conflict, the necessary conflict into which God calls us. When the conflict hits its peak during Holy Week, when the, the conflict comes to a climax during Holy Week, we see Jesus in conflict with the religious establishment of the temple. We see Jesus in conflict with the Roman Empire. And at the cross, we see Jesus in conflict with the powers of darkness and death itself because he loves us and his whole creation. It is love that leads to the necessary conflict. And, and love is the reason why we see this same tension, this same conflict playing out in the book of Acts. And honestly, it's this same tension, this same conflict that we should expect to see playing out through the rest of the story of God. If we are a people possessed of the same love, then we will enter into the same conflict. In verses 12 through 16, our text opens with an overview of the early church's ministry, and we learn that they are continuing the work of bringing healing to their neighbors, and multitudes of people, the text tells us, are coming to faith in Christ, the multitudes of people are being added to their number. And what we see is that their good work in the world, their gospel proclamation, and even their works of mercy and compassion all set up the conflict that unfolds throughout the rest of our passage and through the rest of the book of Acts. But this brings up an important note as we come to the scriptures that I want to pass on to you. I want you to think about this. The important thing in the use of the Bible is not just to understand the text, but to understand the world through the text. You can understand the text and still remain outside of it. But when you understand the world 
through the text. You are now beginning to live inside of the text. You're beginning to live as a character in the story, to indwell the story. Listen, we are the people who know what it's like to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. We're the people that knows what it means to be fed with manna in the wilderness, to receive in return with singing from Babylon, to stand before the cross, to meet the risen Lord in the breaking of the bread. This is our story, and this defines who we are. And what we must do is live inside of the story of the text. And from that position, seek to understand what is happening in the world now. Our proper relationship to the Bible is not just that we examine the Bible, but that the Bible examines us. We allow the text to examine us. Let me, let me give it to you in this way. I get these catalogs from the eyeglass maker Warby Parker, because I wear glasses. And I think that it's true that Warby Parker doesn't just send me these magazines with their different frames and lenses because they want me to look at the catalog. What Warby Parker wants me to do is actually see through their glasses. That's why God has given us his word. Not to just observe it and become smarter sinners who know the theology of the Bible but don't embody it. Who know how to exposit and exegete scripture but don't live it. A people that, that has old theological categories in mind but doesn't know how to live in the world and walk in wisdom in the real life scenarios that our mission raises. No, we're supposed to see through the lenses of scripture to be able to think about the world. And if you think that when we come to passages like this, they are passages that are meant to function like lenses. When you look at the world, you must see that the relationship between the church and the world is going to involve conflict. If you think that conflict is completely avoidable, for the Christian life and the Christian mission, you are disconnected from reality. The implications of this thinking that we should be able to enjoy a conflict-free relationship to the world, the implications of this thinking is that there are no evil forces to resist, no opposition to oppression that must exist, no corrupt socio-political powers, no intruders in God's good world that we must confront. That's foolishness. That's a delusion. But how is the case made for knowing when you have a, a hill that's worth dying on? How do you know when you have a hill worth dying on? Because some, some folks are conflict avoidant, largely due to cowardice. And some people love to fight. And that's toxic. So here's the deal. There are two ways to fall off the horse. You can go off the road of discipleship into this ditch or into this ditch. Both of these are unhealthy ways of thinking about conflict. 
So how do you know when you have a hill worth dying on? On this side of the resurrection, the disciples know we can't move off of this hill of Christian orthodoxy with all of its implications. It doesn't matter what forces of opposition. This is what we know. Christ is raised from the dead. His life and his teachings are true. His word is true. He has called us into, out of darkness into his marvelous light. We know that people are racked and ruined by sin and that their only hope of redemption is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has overcome the grave definitively. What I'm saying is that Christian orthodoxy, as it has been given to us by the church down through the ages, as they look back at Scripture and came to a consensus on the essentials that the, that the Scriptures teach, that is the hill for us. Not secondary issues or tertiary issues. Because we got to remember the ancient maxim that has come down to us. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, Diversity in all things, charity. That has been a Christian maxim down through the ages. So we're not looking for conflict on, on these side issues, but we must be ready to enter into the conflict about the central issues of Orthodox Christian faith. It will bring us in to conflict. Conflict will come, but it's not like the early church was looking for a fight. The fight found them. <laughs> but they didn't back down from it. Because to back down from the fight would be to back down from orthodoxy. It would be to back down from their calling. It would be to back down from their mission. Do you understand that? Inasmuch as you are conflict avoidant, you are recoiling from your ministry and your calling and your mission. The conflict is a necessary result of faithfulness. You must understand if you live a life that is completely free of conflict right now, it calls your faithfulness into question. It's just the simple facts of the text. And that's not meant to shame you. It's meant to be like smelling salts. Wake up. Wake up. We got work to do. We got gospel to share. We got service to render all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's important. That's important for us. Conflict is a necessary result of faithfulness, which brings us to our next point, our fidelity in conflict. I think this is one of the most remarkable things about the early church, their faithfulness, their fidelity in conflict. In verse 17, when we get to verse 17, we get to a very public showdown. It's the establishment versus the upstart. It's the powers of the day, the, the religious powers of the day. And what we're going to eventually see is the socio-political powers of the day are all going to be in opposition to the church and its mission. But what we see in this text, and this is meant to encourage us, is that the presence of the Lord with the disciples strips the masks of righteousness and piety and power from the faces of their opposition. Their opposition is exposed in their jealousy. 
I think it's important that Luke names this because they had moved out of a place of dignified, respectable confrontation in contending for their faith. And a lot of the people in power at this point are working from jealousy. Their motives are not inspired by true faith. Their motives are inspired by jealousy. But, but how, how did the early church remain faithful in the midst of the conflict? How did they do it? Where did that come from for them? I think there are a number of things. I want to walk through three of them with our remaining time. First, how did they remain faithful in conflict? They expected conflict because they knew the teachings and the example of Jesus. Just in the passage right before our text for today, after the disciples experienced the first conflict with the religious establishment, They draw together and then they pray Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is all about the cosmic conflict between the Lord's Messiah and the nations. And Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain against the Lord and his Messiah? They draw together in prayer and then they ask the Lord to look on those who are attacking them. And to give them the grace to remain faithful in the midst of the conflict. They knew that the Lord wanted this for them. Why? Because Jesus taught his disciples when he was still in the world, in his earthly life and ministry. He taught them about the sheep and the goats. He taught them about the wheat and the tares growing up together. Jesus taught his disciples that there is no neutrality or gray areas on this point. He taught his disciples in Matthew 12 saying, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. That, by the way, is a word to the lukewarm and those who play church and play games with the Christian faith. To stop playing games and go all the way. Go all the way in or get all the way out. (laughs) There is no safe neutral area. In John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Half of our problem is that we in 21st century American Christianity expect an easy road to glory. Now we're familiar with, with the hard prosperity gospel that says faith will bring you health and lots of money if you just sow a seed in that ministry. And we rightly reject these as false teachings. But there's a soft evangelical version of this same prosperity gospel that is not so crass, but it shares the same sentiment and the same convictions, and many many of us have fallen for this more acceptable version of the prosperity gospel. I trust in Jesus, so I should have a nice middle class to upper middle class existence. I follow Jesus, so I shouldn't have any tragedies or trials that come into my life. And if they do come into my life, I'm like, God, what are you doing? Where are you at? Right? That is the soft prosperity gospel 
of modern evangelicalism. There's no expectation of suffering, heartache, trials, and conflict in mission. But nothing in the scriptures would lead us to our current expectations. Everything in the scriptures leads us to share the same expectations as the early church and to enjoy the same life of faithfulness and fruitfulness that the early church experienced because we are being resilient in the face of opposition. This has always been when the the church has been the most good for the world, when it has been most distinct from the world. Do you understand that? The only way you can get out of the conflict is if you trim the Christian faith down to something that does not really bother the world. It doesn't provoke the world, but it's also not capable of saving the world. You know why? Because it tells people that they can have Jesus and their sin too. It tells people that they can have the salvation of Jesus without following Jesus. It tells people that they don't have to give up on the sins that are killing them to come to the Lord who gives life. It's a conflicting message. But Jesus says no one can serve two masters. He will either love the one and hate the other or he'll hate the one and love the other. No one can serve God and money. No one can serve God and their own reputation. No one can serve God and the agenda of our age. The agendas, they're everywhere. Everyone and everything out in our culture is trying to make a disciple of you. (laughs) But we're called to be followers of Christ. And we should expect this. The world, the flesh, and the devil all conspire against us. It's conflict. You have to remember, we preach the good news of Jesus Christ, not the good news of happy circumstances in this life. That is not our message. When they are arrested for their ministry to their neighbors and they're thrown in jail, you might have expected the disciples to say something like, God, we out here serving you. And you let us get thrown in prison? You know you ain't right, God. You know you ain't right. How you gonna let us get thrown in prison unjustly? We're your people. But we don't get any such message, any such record of a complaint like this. And when the angel jailbreaks them and they say, now what? The angel says, go back and do the same thing you got arrested for. And the disciples are like, bet. And they go, they go right back to the, to the mission of proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, which is the stubborn fact of history, which is the, the only rational, historically grounded explanation for the growth of the Christian church through the ages, for its existence. It's the stubborn fact of the resurrection. They go right back to what they were called to do. But they were faithful because they expected such conflict and saw it as necessary, and so should we. The second way that I think the church was able to be faithful in conflict is they had a clear understanding of true power, and they answered to God alone. You see this in verses 27 to 32, don't you? You see this? They are being confronted by the powers of their day, the religious and social powers of their community. And the powers say, did y'all not hear us the first time we told you to stop preaching in this name? 
And the disciples say, hey, we're going to obey God rather than man. You do what you got to do. We're going to do what we got to do. They weren't, they weren't scared. <laughs> they weren't intimidated. They didn't feel backed down. They stood in the faith that is in Christ. They were not held captive by the cultural power brokers of the day. We don't see any fear of man in them, do we? They echoed the confident conviction of the psalmist when they would often say, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? That is repeated in the Psalter. What can man do to me? What are you going to do to me? You can't do anything. They didn't ask, is it safe to do this? They didn't ask, is it culturally acceptable to embrace and embody the faith that has once for all been delivered to us by the saints? Their real attitude was, what does the word of God say about our identity and our calling? Is this the pattern that has been laid down for us by the risen Christ? Is this a part of the mission God has given us? This was their primary concern. These are very different questions that yield very different results from the ones we ask. Is this safe? Am I going to get in over my head here? All ministry puts us in over our head. All real gospel ministry puts us in over our head. Every time I step up in this pulpit, I'm in over my head. You realize that, right? But God provides for the calling that he gives. God has specifically told us that he put his treasure in jars of clay so that it'll be clear that the surpassing power doesn't belong to us but to him. So if we're going to go out in his name, we can be assured that we go out with his power, with him backing us up. Their place of ultimacy was Christ, and this enabled them to speak truth to this worldly power on behalf of the true power. That's what enabled them to speak truth to power. And American Christianity has dem demonstrated a pattern of maneuvering to try and get cultural power rather than confronting it. And this is why it's so often held captive to such power, compromising the essence of Christianity. We all answer to some power, y'all. Kids, answer to parents. Teachers, answer to principals. Principals, answer to school boards. Citizens, answer to government. Even CEOs, answer to a board. Someone or something is exerting profound power over your life. And you will not understand your trajectory or your life until you understand the power that most deeply influences you. Is it the powers of the age? Is it the power of the Lord? What power is exerting the deepest influence on your life? The witness of the apostles, the witness of the global and historic church, is that we must obey God rather than man. We answer to God Almighty for our lives in this world. The early church knew this, and this is what helped them to be faithful in conflict. But finally, the early church was faithful in conflict because they had a clear understanding of what was at stake in the mission. They had a clear understanding of what was at stake. 
Their faith and courage to enter the conflict was directly connected to their understanding of the fact that these were matters of life and death, flourishing and ruin, eternal glory and eternal judgment. They understood that the eternal destiny of their neighbors was at stake. So they put their neighbors ahead of themselves by entering into the temporary discomfort that could result in the eternal joy of their neighbors. You see that? Anytime you recoil from that necessary conflict, you're putting yourself ahead of your neighbors. Anytime you recoil from that necessary conflict, you're more interested in preserving your own reputation than you are in preserving the Lord's reputation. God forbid that I look bad in an effort to make him look good. So I will disengage from it because I don't want to get a bad reputation for being one of those people, right? In our age, we're terrified of anything that smacks of extremism, right? We see it on the news all the time. Well, the extremists here and the extremists here and the alt-right extremists and the Marxist extremists and this, that, and the other. All of this, there's a fear of extremism. So much so that we can ironically become the worst kind of extremists. Extremely passive, extremely fearful, and extremely quiet with the gospel. But I'm reminded of the words of Dr. King from Birmingham jail when he was accused by white moderate clergymen of being an extremist. Dr. King replied in his letter from Birmingham jail like this, and I quote, Though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, as I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan? I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? He continues, in that dramatic scene on Calvary's hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists in the language of Dr. King. The apostles were extremists for love and there was no conflict that they were willing to avoid because that love was abiding in them and they were abiding in that love. 
And just like the Lord had first modeled, this brought them into conflict with everything that undermined the holistic flourishing of their neighbors. Even when it cost them the comfortable, safe, and pleasant conditions that they may have longed for. The question for us today is this. Will you be an extremist for love? Will you willingly enter into the conflict that our mission requires? Jesus entered into the conflict for your redemption. And now he's inviting you to enter into the conflict for the redemption of your neighbors. Do you see? There are all the gospel resources you could ever hope for to take up this work. This is part of what Paul meant when he said, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. This is part of what we experience in the mission. It's part of why we come to know Christ better on the mission because we experience the conflicts and the sufferings that he himself was willing to bear for our redemption. Let's make it our prayer and our ambition that we will never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble, for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.